Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with the living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Dr. Chris Beige, author of LSD and the Mind of the Universe, which details his experience of 73 high-dose LSD sessions taken over the span of two decades. In our conversation, Chris discusses reincarnation, its role in human evolution, the creative intelligence of the universe, our current ecological moment, and more. So much more. So please join me in a fascinating conversation with Dr. Chris Beige on Rebel Spirit Radio. Dr. Christopher Beige is Professor uh, Emeritus in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Youngstown State University in Ohio, where he taught for 33 years. He's also an adjunct faculty member at the California Institute of Integral Studies, Emeritus Fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and serves on the Advisory Council of Groff Legacy Training. The heart of Chris's work has been the study of the philosophical implications of non-ordinary states of consciousness, particularly psychedelic states. Chris has written four books, Life Cycles, a study of reincarnation in light of contemporary consciousness research, Dark Night, Early Dawn, an investigation of psychedelic philosophy and collective consciousness, The Living Classroom, an exploration of collective fields of consciousness and teaching, and his latest work, LSD and the Mind of the Universe, the story of his 20-year journey with LSD by way of 73 high-dose LSD sessions. Greeting, Chris, and welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. I am so very grateful for your time today, and I can't even begin to tell you how much I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Good, wonderful. So um, first, I wanted to say that I thoroughly enjoyed your book, LSD in the Mind of the Universe. I found it to be deeply personal. It's beautifully written. It's uh, very engaging and, and I believe necessary. Uh, you know, I've read all of your books and in a way, even though this is your latest, it seems to me to be the first. Hmm. Um, as the experiences you describe, I think, undergird all of your other work that's correct yeah 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 it seems to me it's the source material (laughs) it really is yeah so i wanted to ask you know i'm sure that my listeners who are unfamiliar with you and your work they want to know you know what led you on this journey you know what led you to this journey and why lsd Yeah, quite unexpectedly. I mean, I was raised in the Deep South in Mississippi. You know, I got a degree in theology from Notre Dame. I mean, I'm the last person you would expect to have written a book on LSD research and especially a a psychedelic autobiography. So I really understand. Here, the background is I had I was, had just finished my graduate work at Brown University. I was I, I finished my work as a philosopher of religion. I came out of graduate school as an atheistically inclined agnostic. Hmm. And uh, I had just begun teaching at Youngstown State in Northeast Ohio. And I was looking around for where to take my research after, I mean, I was publishing some articles out of my dissertation. 
And I came across the work of two people who's changed my life. One of them is Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia and his work on reincarnation, which convinced me in one reading that reincarnation was a fact of life. And this was totally new to me in my thinking. And even more influential was the work of Stanislav Grof. He had just published Realms of the Human Unconscious. This was in 1978 when I was a young academic, 30 years old. Uh, so I, I read Stan's work in one reading. He convinced me that of the importance of psychedelics for philosophical inquiry, not just psychological inquiry. And I became convinced that the people who would be making the most important contributions in my field would be people writing out of an experiential basis, not simply an intellectual basis. So I had a choice to make because psychedelics were illegal at this time. And I made the choice to uh, begin a private, hidden psychedelic inquiry just with myself, uh, which led to eventually 73 high dose LSD sessions following Stan Groff's uh, protocols as he outlines in LSD Psychotherapy, his book, LSD Psychotherapy. And um, I, during the daytime, I was a conventional philosopher, a philosopher of religion, teaching my students uh, year in, year out. And in my uh, private life, I began this systematic exploration of the deep structure of my consciousness. And by studying my consciousness, studying how the universe manifested itself in these deep states of consciousness. So that's how I got into it. Wonderful. And, you know, I really appreciate that because, you know, also coming from the a background in religious studies and philosophy myself, mm -hmm. it, drives me a little bit crazy that it's all theoretical uh yeah. that you know there's so little of the practical aspect you know the practice not practical but the practice part of it and uh, you know i think that sometimes students have a feel uh, for this you know they can tell if someone not necessarily if they have had psychedelic experiences but mm -hmm. whether or not they've had profound religious experience yeah. 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 And I, I want to mention right up front that I do not recommend that people do what I did. I'm, I don't recommend that they, setting aside the issue of the legality or the illegality of psychedelics. Okay. That's a changing landscape. Right. But I don't recommend that people follow the protocol that I adopted mm -hmm. uh, because I know more now than I did in the beginning. And I really would recommend, as I do in the book, I explain, I would recommend a different protocol if I were doing it over again today. Yeah, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't read like it was fun. <laughs> uh, you, you describe a lot of pain and suffering, which is something I want to get to. But, you know, I think that a lot of folks who aren't familiar with psychedelics probably have a, a false view of them in many ways. Yeah. You know, this isn't a wild weekend in Las Vegas. You know, I think there's also a lot of fear involved uh, yeah. centered around psychedelics. I wanted to, um, since we're kind of talking about, you know, you had to keep this secret and you describe in the book how this, it was, that was also painful for you. 
that you couldn't be open about this for a variety of reasons. You know, the illegality, of course, is important. It also, I think, uh, probably there was a question of uh, credibility with some of the academic community who I think still have a tendency to look down on these experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you you know, you mentioned that the landscape seems to be changing somewhat. Uh, I know that uh, I think Oregon uh, legalized psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, there is legislation currently moving through California to decriminalize all psychedelics. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, given this new landscape where psychedelics are more accepted, have you ever wondered or thought about what it would have been like to teach in this sort of new environment or a new environment where these things are more accepted? Wouldn't that have been interesting? Uh, There, I mean, first I did have an opportunity to do some teaching at the California Institute of Integral Studies in the Philosophy, Cosmology and Consciousness program. But this came rather late in my series. I mean, basically I did my work between 1979 in 1999, when I was between 30 years old and 50 years old, you know, and now I'm in my early 70s. So, uh, it, so I did have an opportunity to teach graduate students this material uh, after Dark Night Early Dawn came out. Uh, but it would be fascinating to be able to be doing this work in the classroom today, instead of in online you know, settings and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's another, there's an upside for having waited as long as I did. Uh, I waited 20 years until after I'd finished this work to write LSD in the Mind of the Universe. And I did so not only for the legal ramifications, but I did so because these experiences were extremely difficult to understand. When you work with high doses of LSD, it pushes you into dimensions of reality that go considerably beyond what even appears in much of the mystical literature. Mm. And it just, and, and the methodology that you're using to engage these deep states of consciousness is very different than the methodology that's found in contemplative, you know, meditative mystical traditions. And so there were a lot of riddles to figure out, a lot of puzzles. And if I had been teaching while I was doing this work, mm. uh, I, I might not have been able to produce as mature a final mm. product. So by holding on to it for a long time, really pondering it and working out a lot of the details, I think the end result is a more polished, clear uh, mm. presentation of the stages of the journey. Because uh, my experience was well, two things. Uh, my experience was I went through a series of death and rebirth experiences going through layer after layer after layer in, in the universe. But let me say something about the methodology itself, because as you say, this is an, an unfamiliar protocol. And if people are familiar with psychedelics at all, they tend to think of psychedelics either as the recreational, in a recreational way of tripping and um, you know, social, taking psychedelics and socializing or, you know, going into the woods or something, or if they're informed by today's 
you know, experiences, they would think of psychedelics in terms of a therapeutic protocol aimed at, he at personal healing. Um, the work I did methodologically was similar to the current protocols under adoption. That is, I was working completely isolated from the outside world. Every day that I did a session, I had no contact with the outside world. I was by myself in my home or in my then wife's office. And my former wife was my sitter for all my sessions. So I was working under the care and supervision of a clinical psychologist, isolated, lying down on the floor, eye shades, earphones, listening to very carefully uh, selected music that was specifically designed to pace the various stages of opening and closing in a session. Um, and then my, I would write up my session within 24 hours of the session. So it's, it's a very different environment than if you're you know, taking LSD and going to a concert or something sure. like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious in a sense, um, because you were doing this at a, you know, the high dose level, would the same methodology apply for lower dosages? Same methodology would apply, but the, the nature, the nature of the journey is different. When you work with lower doses, or with gentler psychedelics like psilocybin, perhaps, or ayahuasca, you, you basically, you're, these, what psychedelics do is they amplify the unconscious, they amplify consciousness, and they catalyze consciousness. So things that are usually far beyond your capacity, out of your conscious ability to experience, begin to come forward into your experience. So there is a churning and a rising of unconscious content in your conscious awareness. If you're working with lower doses of a psychedelic, it, you tend to peel consciousness in layers. Mm. So you may spend lots and lots of time working through various psychodynamic levels of consciousness, then moving stage by stage slowly into deeper levels of consciousness. When you work with high doses of psychedelic, there's a much more powerful cathartic uh, sense of it. And you, you tend to move very quickly through various psychodynamic levels and engage starting with what Stan calls the perinatal level of consciousness or at the boundary between physical reality and, and spiritual reality. And then you keep pushing deeper and deeper into various levels of transpersonal or spiritual uh, consciousness. Okay. One more question kind of about methodology. Yeah. I understand that it's helpful to begin a session by stating an intention. And you had an intention, I believe that you wrote, it was something like, you know, may I, may this help me serve the common good uh, or mm -hmm. something like that. But then later you, you write that with the high doses you were taking, that the intention didn't seem to matter that you were taken where uh, yeah. I guess by this cosmic intelligence, which we can talk about a little bit later, uh, wanted yeah. to take you. I'm curious, is the intention still important in the low dose ses uh, sessions or is there a similarity where you can set the intention, but you're going to go wherever, whatever is driving this experience wants to take you? I think it's a combination of both. 
if you are the, the essence of this type of practice is surrender. You just mm -hmm. completely, once you create safe conditions, once you are really contained, you surrender completely to the experience and let it take you wherever it wants to go, whether or not you understand it at the time. But when you are working with lower doses, it, it disrupts your psychological structure less. And mm -hmm. so your, your reasons for doing the work can influence more where you go. When okay. you work with high doses, my experience was at least, my personal experience was that it, it just, whatever intention I had going into the work was very quickly uh, completely shattered and it didn't really make much difference the intention I brought in. Uh, I was on a journey and a deeper consciousness, a larger consciousness was guiding my journey. And there were many, many things that happened and I didn't really understand in certain respects. I did not understand the deep structure of what was happening until years and years of, of experiences later. I mean, there was a journey that I was on and you can't understand what's happening simply from where you've been in the past without knowing where you're going in the future. So it's from the hindsight perspective that I can understand some of the structure of what happened. But what I found was that I was always engaging or being guided by an intelligence, which I think of as the mind of the universe, a cosmic intelligence. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this cosmic intelligence. And, you know, is, is this what other people might identify as God? Is it something beyond God? What else can you say about this? You know, I, I'm assuming that this is the mind of the universe uh, from the title of the book. Yes. What shall we call it? You know, <laughs> shall we call it God? But then all of a sudden we have to start dealing with all the historical conditions and interpretations of that concept in the different religions of the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really comfortable with that. Uh, I use, sometimes refer to it as the divine, but that's really just a, a step sideways a little bit. I don't know what we should call it. You might call it the Tao. I think of it as the intelligence, the generative intelligence of the universe, the, the intelligence which is responsible for the Big Bang and the unfolding of all time and space since the Big Bang. I mean, I have this virtual background behind me because just because it tokens the dimensions of the universe, which we have now understand in this century better than we've ever understood before, how incredibly large it is, how incredibly old it is. And psychedelic research adds to this, it's also conscious. So the size of the universe and the age of the universe are a reflection in a way of the intelligence and the consciousness of the universe. And it is so large, we can't see the edges of it. And it's so old, we can't see to the beginning of it. So what shall we call this? In classical cultures, one would call it God, but the, but the interpretations of God over the last 6,000 years have always been constricted by the cultural context in which these right. concepts have been formed. And I don't want to buy into that. And yet there are certain, clearly certain qualities about this consciousness, which echo 
the qualities of the infinite divinity, which have been talked about, particularly in the mystical traditions of the world, spiritual traditions, more than in the neighborhood church theology, specifically in the contemplative mystical traditions. When you speak, it kind of reminds me of the uh, Merkabah mysticism of Ezekiel, where you can't actually describe or explain this full vision of God, but you can talk about the throne. You can talk about the hem of, you know, the, the robe that God is wearing, but it's just a very small portion uh, of this grander vision. Yeah, I think so. I, I think in the end, I mean, I've, I've spent more ink than most people trying to describe these things. Yeah. And even so, I still feel like I'm really just talking about the hem of the garment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this cosmology that, that was revealed to you, but also uh, you reveal to your readers. And one of the, the, the key elements is reincarnation. And uh, like you said earlier, uh, you were deeply informed by the work of Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia. And I agree with you. I think that he provides absolute evidence, uh, even though he was very cautious, <laughs> you know, trying to be a good scientist there. But I think that the evidence is unequivocal. But yet you have a bit of a different take on reincarnation, it seems, than the traditional understanding. And yeah. so uh, I would like you to, uh, if you could, speak to that a little bit more and uh, say uh, something also about how reincarnation fits into this cosmology. Well, uh, Ian Stevenson and a host of researchers who have followed in his stead and a, a host of therapists who have been working in, pa in past life therapy in the hundreds and hundreds of cases that they've generated, uh, convince us if you are really un unbiased and you really look at the data, I think it's overwhelmingly clear that reincarnation occurs, that there is continuity of memory across multiple lifetimes, that our consciousness is older than our body. Uh, so the mind that I'm using to speak to you now has a history that's older than my physical body. But how it works, you know, we, we still are beginners in this. We don't really know the physics of reincarnation. We don't really know what the soul is. We don't know how consciousness encodes its learning into a new brain physiology. We don't know how consciousness leaves at the, when a person dies, how our experience leaves intact and stays coherent after the body falls apart. There's so much that we don't know. I'm sure we'll be learning more as we go on, but there's much that we don't know. And I think many of our early understandings of reincarnation are just inadequate. I mean, for example, the idea that you incarnate as a human being and then you come back as an animal, uh, you know, and most sophisticated thinkers of reincarnation reject that idea that it's like once you, once you can function at a certain level, there's nothing to be gained from coming back and functioning at a lesser or lower capacity level. So once a human, human and up in a way. 
other ideas that uh, that reincarnation is somehow something simple like going from one life to another life to another life much more complicated because when you get into the past life literature you find that actually my present life is informed not simply by my most immediate previous life but my by multiple lives that i have already lived so it's like playing cards the deck may have 52 cards but you're only dealt a certain number of cards for a particular hand so the a certain number of my former lives may be active in structuring some of the issues that i'm dealing with in this life and for the most part the other lives are quiescent and in the background so to speak so lots and lots of of changes and modifications to the idea but the basic vision is that when we die we expand into a larger state of consciousness which i think of as the soul and i define the soul as the consciousness that holds all of our experience all of our incarnational experience when we incarnate we contract down into a very limited physical body historical circumstance uh social circumstance so on so forth we it's like going to college when you start the college when you start the semester you're in a, a specific set of courses learning a specific set of things then at the end of the semester spring break you know you expand into a, a larger state when you die you go into a larger state reconnect with the universe and you contract so reincarnation the pulse of reincarnation is this rhythm of expansion at death and contracting at birth over and over and over and over again whatever the details and in this process we learn we challenge ourselves we we become more than we were before and naturally the lessons that we're investigating exploring in every lifetime matures just like students go back and forth to college semester after semester but they're studying different things as they the longer they stay in school they're maturing they're they're developing new capacities the the primary difference that i see from traditional that i hold from traditional thinking about reincarnation is that classically in the eastern traditions which affirm reincarnation the idea is that we grow we grow we grow and then we come to a spiritual plateau where we truly wake up to what's been going on and we wake up to what we are we wake up to that essence of us which has never died the essence which allows us to die and be reborn that essence which in hinduism it's called atman and that atman is brahman the essence of the individual is the essence of the divine in classical reincarnation thinking when you are sufficiently mature that you wake up to this deeper spiritual identity and experience some of the deep spiritual truths of oneness of the essence of divine being the essence of everything which exists at that point when you die you leave the system you leave time space and there is a culmination which takes place off planet whether it's heaven or the islamic garden are the buddha pure land that existence culminates off planet in leaving i understand that theory i understand its historical context and i i think it makes sense given what we are capable of understanding when these ideas began to 
percolate about three to 4,000 years ago. But as we now understand more about the universe, more about the evolutionary development of the universe, more about the time frame of the universe, I think we are beginning to see a different outcome. I think the goal of reincarnation, at least the, I don't think we can see the ultimate goal any more than we can see the ultimate goal of the universe, but the intermediate goal is to wake up and not to leave, but to wake up and to fully embody your soul consciousness in physical reality. So the soul wakes up and you're, you, you no longer are tempted to identify with your physical body as yourself. The soul wakes up, and I call this in the book, the birth of the diamond soul, uh, that we wake up and we have, a, first of all, we remember our former lives. More importantly, we live consciously the deep life, which has been gestating inside all these incremental courses that we've been taking all these centuries. Mm, that's absolutely beautiful. And I love that you, you know, it's this not escaping into a heaven or transcendence or yeah. nothingness and nirvana, but, you know, you say it's this deepening of a sacred presence on the earth. Yes. One of the questions that came up for me while listening to you was, you know, we don't remember necessarily our past lives. Yeah. Um, but you know, some children have, you know, some, um, aspects of it. And, you know, I've always suspected that there are some things with me that come from past life experiences that mm -hmm. I just can't explain. And I've just had this ongoing suspicion that something that happened previously that explains everything. But what I'm curious about is having this, 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 knowledge that we are souls on this journey, can we start working, being cognizant of this, can we start doing things now in our lives to affect the long picture of this cycle uh, and where we are in this cycle? Um, can I do things now that will consciously affect my rebirth, I guess maybe is the way I'm. Uh, yeah. I think so. And, and I think to their credit, uh, the spiritual traditions, the classic spiritual traditions have always said, even once you begin to understand what's happening, once you begin to understand the truth of reincarnation and the truth of karma, and karma simply is the, the cycle of cause and effect, which conditions consciousness and conditions destiny. Once you begin to understand that, then whether or not you have active recall of your former lives, you can still begin to make, uh, you can improve the quality of your choices. So for example, once you, once you understand karma, you naturally begin to make non choices of non-injury. Mm. You make, begin to make more choices of generosity. You mm. begin to uh, make choices which are not simply tuned to the short-term circumstance, but choices of the long-term. Mm -hmm. We see this in the Native American tradition where you're looking for seven generations, every important choice is over seven generations. That basic mindset 
that you begin to think long-term and you think not just how your choices are affecting you, but understanding how they affect other people. Understanding that spiritually, you and other people are like two leaves on the same branch of a tree. You're separate at one level, but you're not separate at another. And once you kind of even understand that intellectually, you make choices that serve the good of the tree. Mm. And in making choices that are larger and more deep and deeper, you accelerate your evolutionary development. You accelerate it and you improve the outcome of this lifetime. And this, is, this does not require knowing who you were in the 17th right. century or anything like that. It simply requires that you begin to understand the structure of reality. This is what the Hindus call Dharma, mm -hmm. the, the teachings of the, about the way things are. And it's simply learning what's real and then adjusting yourself to live in harmony with what's real. Mm, wonderful. I, I was actually thinking this morning um, in thinking about this uh, conversation, mm -hmm. the analogy that you used of the Native American belief, you know, the seven generations mm -hmm. out, it kind of occurred to me that in this picture that you're presenting, you know, I think that when we hear this seven generations out, we often consider them as that they're not us. Yeah. But in reincarnation, they are us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I was wondering if more people had that idea, how would it change? Because how would it change how we act in the world right now? Yeah. Well, let's take just the ecological yeah. In a situation, in a, in a fundamental way, reincarnation tells us that the world we come back to is the world we leave, not mm -hmm. only in terms of its psychological structure, but literally in terms of the earth. Now, we've never faced a situation like we are facing now in terms of the impact of our industrial culture on the entire planet. But if we truly believe that in 100 years from now, we're going to be back on this earth. Don't you think we'd be make, taking better care of the earth? Don't you think we'd be looking to more care of our ecological systems? If we believe that we would be coming back into society and we would, did not know and could not control necessarily what part of society we're coming back into, don't you think we would be trying to create a society that worked for all, that was just for all, that was fair in its distribution of resources. So yeah, I think those choices, those ideas do have impact uh, on how we think about organizing our culture. Yeah, and it seems to me that it's, you know, because I've thought about this before, where, you know, I try to be as environmentally aware and cognizant as I can be and not harm, um, although I know that I do. And part of that is just by the virtue of this system that we are embedded in. But, I, but I've often thought about this in terms of karma and that my actions now are definitely going to affect, you know, these future generations. And it seems kind of fundamentally wrong to me to think that I would escape or any of us would escape the consequences of that. 
Um, and, uh, and I wonder, we'll move on from reincarnation here in a little bit, but, (laughs) um, I'm, I'm deeply fascinated by the question. If more people accepted this idea of reincarnation or were aware of this, do you think, and, and, and this larger vision that you're providing, um, because one of the questions I wanted to ask you about this is it seems to me, and I'm probably jumping uh, uh, way forward uh, more than I should be, but it seems to me that we are undergoing this transformation of spirituality, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think that more and more people are hearing sort of the call to spirituality. I, I've personally been going through this for the past couple of years, and I'm at this place where I just want absolutely everything I do to be grounded in, in, in spiritual practices. And I know I have other friends that are doing similar things. And so my question is, do you think this is part of the evolution of our collective consciousness? Do you think that we are moving towards this larger vision that um, uh, you experienced? I think so. Uh, I think that while there is a a growing uh, appreciation and awareness and thirst for spiritual truth, spiritual encounter, uh, it's not necessarily expressing itself as a, as a an increase of religiosity or an increase of religious participation. And personally, I think what's happening is that the religions that exist today have largely done the bulk of the work that they were kind of charged with doing. Mm. I mean, once you understand the breadth, the length of human evolution, how many hundreds of thousands of years we are involved in growing and growing and growing and growing, then when you look at religions, and religions don't last more than a few thousand years, you know, for, you know, a few thousand years, and a religion can't, we have a history of sort of thinking that a religion, if it's true, it's eternally true. It'll mm. be true forever and ever. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really seem to be realistic. And I think it's more likely that a religion helps an evolving humanity, helps a reincarnating humanity go from A to B. Mm. And then we come to B and there's so much more to go. It requires a new set of insights, a new inspiration, a new vision to take us from B to C. And when we get to C, it'll require a new vision to take us from C to D. And I think we're at that, a phase where the vision which has taken us to here is, is not sufficient to take us where we need to go next. And I would mention that all the religions of the world, and I know you're a professor of religion, so you'll appreciate that there are fundamentally two core mistakes that all the religions of the, of the axial age make, many others perhaps, but at least two. One of them is it gets women wrong. Mm, yeah. Okay. Historical <laughs> systems, you know, yeah. and so, relatedly, it gets nature wrong. Mm. So our... Uh, when you have an up and out theology where the goal is to become spiritually awakened or to spiritually saved and then leave time and space, 
you have this gap so that the physical world is not valued as deeply as the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're so on and so forth. So what happens is we don't really have an answer to the question, what is the purpose of time space? What is the purpose of the physical world? It becomes a veil of tears, or it becomes something that we basically are trying to get away from, to get back home or to get to someplace better. That these religions are wrong about women and they're wrong about the earth. And what we need going forward is a vision of reality that is larger, that includes the best of the insights of the religions of the past, but then expands them into a new set of visions, which is truly gender balanced and also species balanced. Because mm. now, you know, the religions have been, for the most part, anthropocentric in that they value men and human beings more than other species. And a vision which values physicality, values the experience of being physical as more than simply a training ground for going to heaven. Yeah, yeah, so very good, yeah. I think we're basically, we're in a transition time. The collapse of the old is getting clearer and clearer, but it's not yet clear what the new is going to be yet because we're at the cusp. It's like we're in the middle of a night and we are seeing the early, early layers of dawn, but we really have not seen what's, what's coming forward fully. It's a very uncomfortable time to be in because there's so much uncertainty. Things are falling apart. We haven't really congealed around a new vision yet. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of back and forth, a lot of push pull, a lot of conflict. We can see this, this polarization in the political arena. Uh, but now we don't have any time. The earth is forcing us into uh, a new formation of our values. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I was thinking about our current moment and in particular with this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And initially I thought that the pandemic was a, almost like a final warning shot mm -hmm. um, and a last opportunity to make a lot of meaningful changes. You know, I remember when the lockdowns first happened I was out walking one evening and, you know, I'm in Pasadena, which is in LA County and the air was clean. You know, I could breathe. And I think for a while, LA had some of the cleanest air in the nation. You know, there were stories about dolphins returning to the canals in Venice and wildlife coming into the cities. And for me, one of the great things about this, even though I was riddled with anxieties, um, was it was quiet again. I could hear nature and you would hear stories about that. Like in New York, you could hear birdsong again. And I thought, well, this is amazing. This is, even though this is horrible, it's also potential. Yeah. And then a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had thunderstorm uh, here. Uh, it wasn't too bad, but there was this tremendous crack of thunder and you might appreciate this, but since, you know, I, I grew up in Ohio, so I hear this crack of thunder, I immediately have to go out to my front porch and uh, it wasn't really raining and it wasn't horribly overcast. I could actually see pollution again, hovering over a nearby freeway and I could hear the sounds from the freeway. Mm -hmm. I could hear cars and, and horns and a siren. And I thought then it's like, it, it's too late. 
you know, um, you know, we've lost our chance. We have to go through these experiences. And it yeah. seems to me that in your book, you, you actually make, it seems like you're suggesting something similar. We have to go through this. We are going to have to experience this pain that we spend so much time avoiding the pain, but it's a necessary part of this initiation into a new form of humanity. Am, am I getting that right? I think we are being initiated. I mean, we're kind of jumping. This is a chapter that I deal with towards the very end of the book. So we're kind of jumping over a lot okay. of intermediate places. But basically, I think humanity is being initiated into a new level of consciousness and a new level of maturity. We're basically inheriting the consequences of our egoic history where in the ego is a beautiful thing. I think ego often gets a, a bad rap in the mm. religious traditions, but individual consciousness is a beautiful thing. I mean, it's just a, an extraordinarily beautiful mechanism, but it's fundamentally fragmented. It mm. really cuts us off from each other. We don't experience necessarily the common ground that we share with each other and with other life forms and with the physical world itself. And I think we can no longer afford that kind of fragmentation because a world built by the ego, the, a civilization built by the ego is an inherently divided and fragmented world. It uh, in, divides into have and have nots, just the mm. definition of who is haves and who the have nots are changes, but it's a fragmented world. Uh, and it's a world we are basically inheriting centuries and centuries of the consequences of a world built by the ego. Mm. And we need to grow up uh, mm -hmm. to become less of an adolescent and more of an adult, taking adult-sized responsibility, adult-sized vision, and an, an adult-sized commitment. Um, yeah, and, and I think there's, there's going to be pain because mm. uh, these the choices of the past have accumulated not only in our social systems, in our legal systems, economic systems, but they've also accumulated within our bodies. Mm. Uh, and we have all this history. And so there's a tremendous detoxification mm. that's yeah. taking place and is about to take place in, in a purification process. And, and I think that basically we're coming into I mean, this is, I think of this as a birth process and birth is really, really hard work as every woman uh, will tell you. I mean, gestation is a long gradual process, but birth, when the waters break and it's time to get that baby out, that's a very short and cathartic and powerful process. And I think basically what's happening is this new human or this future human has been gestating inside of us for thousands and thousands of incarnations. The, the diamond soul has been gestating and developing and developing century by century, century by century. And now it's time for this higher being, this larger being, this deeper being to be born. Labor is hard work. And I think we're going into global labor. Mm. Yeah. And it, it seems, you know, along those lines that we also have 
you know, you say that we've embodied a lot of this trauma and also the trauma from our past lives mm -hmm. and that we are going through a necessary healing process and the pain is part of that healing, it seems. Yeah. Uh, I'm also kind of curious about not just in terms of the past lives, but also in terms of, I guess, like ancestors. Hmm. You know, um, I think about this personally, my family has a lot to account for, uh, but I also thought of it in terms of just the culturally, you know, like we have the founding fathers and those are our kind of collective ancestors. And there's a lot of pain and trauma from them mm -hmm. that we still have to account for. Well, just as we are those future seven generations, yeah. we are our ancestors. Mm -hmm. So our ancestors are not separate and other than us, but in a reincarnating universe where generation after generation, we're constantly coming, being born. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that means that the ancestors in us are in other, how do, it's easy to overgeneralize and to oversimplify what is an incredibly subtle and complex process. So right. I forgive me if, yeah. if I do that, but the strains of our ancestors, the themes of the learning of our ancestors, the qualities of our ancestors are woven into our current incarnation. Mm. And, and, and not only the, the pains left over from our former lives, but also the strengths and, and, and incredible qualities. See, I think that many of us have learned about reincarnation by reading the literature on past life therapy. So mm -hmm. our approach to our understanding of reincarnation tends to be inflected by a therapeutic model. Mm -hmm. And people go into therapy, not because of the things that they make them feel good. They go into therapy because of their pain, mm -hmm. but, I think that's really a relatively small percentage of the carryover from our previous lives. Our school system has many, many problems, but most kids pass every year. Most kids learn, mm -hmm. right? And I think the, most people learn and come out of every incarnation with more positive than negative. Mm -hmm. And we carry the positive forward as well as carrying the negative forward. So that there's a tremendous accumulation of capacity, of intelligence built into our, into our bodies, of musical intelligence and mathematical intelligence and social intelligence that are in a sense, the voices of our ancestors alive in us as we continue to this process of becoming the ancestors of our future selves. Wonderful. And that gets to, I think, one of the final points I wanted to get at in terms of uh, reincarnation, which is you talk a bit about, and you have been speaking about the evolution here and, you know, the evolution of the species and reincarnation. I think at one point you say that evolution grows species where reincarnation grows individuals, mm -hmm. but there seems to be this connection between human evolution and as a species and the individual reincarnation. Um, yeah. So I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit more about that. I think of reincarnation as the higher octave of evolution. And, and, and of course, well, 
evolution, our scientists tell us that evolution is an evolving of whole species. It's a learning and development of whole species. Somewhere along the way, nature has figured out or the intelligence behind nature has figured out how to evolve individuals within certain highly developed species. So somewhere along the way, as we move from group evolution, individual evolution is added on top of that where it becomes a matter of the evolution of our consciousness. So it, it has to do with the birth of individuality when individuality begins to emerge within species. Where does that begin? No one knows quite for sure, but somewhere along the way, species begin to birth individuals. Then those individuals make choices and those choices begin to influence their learning. And once you have that cycle established, you have the cause and effect that's influencing not just the physiology of species, but the psychophysiology of individuals. So I think of reincarnation as the higher octave of evolution. It is when evolution has reached a point where it is involving individuals and it is evolving the consciousness of individuals. Okay, wonderful. And when you were speaking, uh, the thought occurred to me that this model avoids, in a sense, and maybe I'm wrong, but it, it seems to avoid this issue of like intelligent design that it's coming from outside because it seems like in this model we are the ones that are actively driving human evolution through this cycle uh, would that be correct yeah i think uh i think the idea of design uh in this way is a reaction to the sort of um inadequacy of conventional evolutionary mm. theory mm. and its failure to, to, un to explain certain aspects of evolution. Right. So intelligent design uh, is an attempt to bridge some of those gaps, but the problem is that it's all external. You always right. have an external deity who's tinkering from the outside. I would think that evolution and reincarnation is an emergent principle it's the intelligence is already there in matter. The intelligence is manifesting itself in ever greater complexity, uh, partly through the mechanisms recognized by science, but partly through other mechanisms, subtler mechanisms. But it's an emergent quality, which means it's arising from within. So evolution arises from within organisms and evolution arises within reincarnation. It's, it's, so it's a, it's a self-expressive, self-transformative process. Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I wanna turn to some of your uh, experiences again and this idea of, and we've already talked about this a little bit, but the, 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 the pain and the experiences and you, know, you describe again, this um, ocean of suffering that's both personal and collective. And, you know, it, it seems to me that most religions, I think all religions have something to say about suffering. And many of them are centered around ending the suffering. But you write that we need to be open to our suffering. Yeah. So let me back, let's back up a little bit. Okay. Let's back into a context. Sure. When 
you are working in a therapeutic modality with psychedelics. Your system becomes hyper conscious. You are temporarily more conscious than you were before. And what happens when, when you do that is that the system begins to spontaneously cleanse itself, to clean itself. So it brings forward, not simply, it brings forward the parts of your past which you've had difficulty dealing with. It brings forward your pain. It brings forward your fears. It brings forward, you know, so on and so forth. And by confronting those fears and confronting those pains uh, heroically, one can bring to better resolution things that had gotten started somewhere in the past, but didn't really work out completely. So deaths that were ugly, uh, relationships that were ugly or problematic in different ways. So you basically, by embracing the suffering which presents itself to you in your sessions, you engage that, you see it, you let it into your awareness. And by letting it into your awareness, you uh, bring it, it brings itself to better outcome. Mm -hmm. And when you face the trauma, say, in a particular aspect of life, either from this life or from another life, something like this, uh, then there is a tremendous relaxation that takes place in the system. And the system is then free to move into deeper and deeper levels of reality. Now, in the early stages of one's work, one reaches a point where uh, when consciousness begins to expand beyond time-space reality, you begin to be threatened with what is called ego death. And ego here means simply the identity that you have formed in your time-space experience. But when consciousness begins to go beyond that time-space identity, that time-space identity eventually is shattered. It dies simply because your mind is bigger than your body and your body's history and you go through an ego death experience, which is very painful. It's, it's kind of like an inversion of everything that you've ever known yourself to be. But you go through that process and in that surrender, one's consciousness is liberated into deeper textures of mind, deeper textures of consciousness. If you continue this process, if you keep exploring these deeper textures, you will go through more cycles of purification more cycles, which eventually lead to deeper layers of dying, deeper layers of surrendering. And you will go through another catharsis of death, and then you'll be exploded into yet deeper dimensions of reality, which you will then be able to explore in future sessions. Again, this is always working within a very highly focused regimen of exploration. It's not like this way, this time, this way, that time. You're really always working a particular edge. Now, as you go through different layers of, of consciousness, of consciousness which transcends your individual awareness, there are different patterns that you engage. And so there, some of the early patterns will be these unfinished businesses from your personal life and from your soul's life. But sometimes you engage unfinished trauma that's species-wide, 
that has to do with your entire human family. And this is what I write about in a chapter called The Ocean of Suffering, where after I'd gone through ego death and after I continued to go deeper, I began to get drawn into vast fields of human suffering, just terrible, terrible anger, terrible torture, terrible pain and suffering. And it went on for two years, just huge tracks of human suffering. And eventually, at first I saw this as a, a refining of ego death, as sort of another layer of the death of my own ego. But eventually I came to the conclusion that this was wrong, that this was not a something aimed at my personal transformation of all. It was aimed at the transformation of nothing less than my entire human family. Mm. That somehow in these experiences, in these sessions, if you are, if you are willing to go, go there, by bringing into your consciousness the suffering of humanity in some way, shape, or form, if you're willing to let the suffering of humanity come into your full consciousness, and remember that by saying your consciousness, I'm not talking about Chris Bache's narrow personality consciousness, because at this point, your consciousness has expanded to much, much, much larger dimensions. So it is as if you are the species remembering the species pain and reliving the species pain. And if you do that, you, there is a, a transformation that takes place which registers within your individual awareness, but it also, I think, registers, and this is the hypothesis, but it registers within the, the awareness of the human species as a whole, mm. that I think we are actually working to heal humanity of some of the trauma that it's carrying just as an individual carries the scars of his or her trauma, the species carries the scars of all the wars, of all the terrible things we've done to each other, all the, all the terrible things we've done yeah. to each other is still carried in the collective psyche. So for two years, I was processing this pain. And let me back up. In every session, there's a purification part and there's an ecstatic part, right? Mm. So it's not like there was nothing but pain and suffering for all these sessions. There were several hours of pain and suffering, and then they would come to a culmination and I would go through some type of dying process. And then I would be spun out into ecstatic transpersonal spaces where I would be given more instruction, more opportunities to learn and grow. So it was always a rhythm of purification, personal or collective, followed by ecstatic instruction, personal or collective, right? And then eventually, after two years of working in the ocean of suffering, I went through a, a profound culmination of that process. Hard to describe, but I do the best I can in the book. And then it stopped. It never reoccurred. And I was operating from that point on, I was operating beyond the collective psyche level beyond the level of the of the collective unconscious i was catapulted first into archetypal reality and had uh, spent a year and a half exploring different dimensions of archetypal reality and then there was another death and rebirth process which catapulted me into what 
some thinkers would call causal reality, uh, the reality of oneness, where you begin to explore what life is like, in a sense, you might say, what life is like from the perspective of the divine or from the perspective of the creative intelligence itself, because the creative intelligence has manifested itself in the body of the universe. And there is divisions and diversity in the universe, but within itself, there is a, a oneness which has never been shattered, which is not divided. And you can dissolve into that oneness. And when you dissolve into the oneness, you experience all of reality functioning as an undivided whole, different, you know, different colors, different textures, different qualities, different beings in a way, but underneath those differences, a fundamental wholeness. And then there was yet another series of deaths and rebirths. And then I was catapulted into yet another uh, level of reality beyond causal level reality. So it, the, the, last, the, the last thing I treat in the first chapter of the book where I'm introducing the method is my primary concern I have for readers of this book. And that is the quantity of suffering that it tells. And it's not because I'm a sadomasochist. It's not because I enjoy suffering. I'm like any ordinary person. I li I'd like to avoid my suffering. Thank you very much. But the suffering is part of a cycle of purification. And once you learn that the, the deepest breakthroughs and the deepest insights come after the deepest purifications, and you learn that rhythm, that there's purification and then breakthrough, then you surrender to the suffering willingly in order to be of use to the system, to be of use to the universe, but then also to receive the blessings mm. that are waiting for you when you go through that process that are on the other side of that suffering. Yeah, that answers a lot of questions because it answers why, you know, you, you write that, you know, creation is a choice and we all voluntarily participate. You know, we choose to take this on, but there's always a blessing. There's always a blessing after all of this, which yeah. I think is phenomenal. Um, uh, let me ask you the subtitle of the book, which you refer to as the inner title mm -hmm. is the uh, diamonds from heaven. Yeah. Are, are these diamonds from heaven? Are, 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 is this the blessing? Is this the gift that we get from going through this process? Well, there are many blessings that come in this work. There are many blessings of insight, of transformation, uh, of opening and deepening. But the phrase diamonds from heaven, I, I use in a more specific way. After I had been doing this work for 15 years, and I was, had worked through all the layers of ego death and then collective species ego death and archetypal reality and causal level realities. I was catapulted, I went through yet another death rebirth process and I was catapulted into a dimension of consciousness or a dimension of reality, which was pure light, clear, 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 crystalline light. Uh, I had experienced light as many psychedelic voyagers do at different levels of one's journey, but this was 
when I call it diamond consciousness or diamond luminosity, I'm not simply using a metaphor to describe the light. I'm trying to describe a particular quality of light, ultra, ultra, ultra clear, clear beyond imagination. And over the last, over the next five years, the last five years of my work in 26 sessions, so about a, a third of the entire sessions of, the, of my journey, I was taken into this diamond luminosity four times. And in between those four times, there's lots and lots of purification, many lessons and many teachings, but lots of purification. And it's those four sessions and the immersion in the diamond luminosity on those four days, which I consider the greatest diamonds from heaven. They are the true diamonds from heaven. They are the, for me, the most important takeaway. The domain I entered when I looked in, at the religious literature uh, to try to find the closest thing that would correspond to this. Of course, the divine is always imaged as light, which is relevant. But um, in Buddhism, they talk about Dharmakaya, this dimension of reality, Dharmakaya, and they call it the clear light of absolute reality. It is the light out of which the Big Bang emerges. And that, I think, is what I was experiencing in what I call the diamond luminosity. The, the cosmology that you present seems to be very Buddhist in many ways. There's, there are clearly some differences, you know, especially with the reincarnation to that, you know, the goal is not to enter party or nirvana, um, uh, but to continue evolving. Mm-hmm. I wonder, are there any other differences? I mean, do you feel that this in many ways confirmed much of Buddhism or, you know, what are the, what would be the differences? Well, I've really been deeply influenced by all the religions of the world. I mean, I taught world religions for decades, you know, so every semester I was going around the world um, exploring. So I've been deeply influenced by Christianity and I, I began life as a Christian and as a Catholic. I actually was in the seminary for four years uh, studying to be a Catholic priest. And the two, and I've learned so much from Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and some of the Native American traditions, the two which have been the most, uh, the deepest and long lasting influences on me and Judaism, I should add. I mean, I learned Hebrew because I was doing biblical studies in the early years. I learned Greek and Hebrew. Uh, have been Christianity and Buddhism. So I think my, my journey affirms the deepest truths of Christianity and all the world's religions. I think that affirms the deep truths of, of uh, the Kabbalah and Judaism and of Hinduism and Buddhism. And at the same time, not just in, in reincarnation, the theory of reincarnation that emerged in my work, but in many ways, it affirms, but it also eclipses the religions of the last several thousand years. Mm -hmm. um, because I think the, the universe that I was initiated into, the opportunities that I was given to explore the deep structure of reality took me into, it, it, let's say, it demanded that I developed levels of understanding that went beyond anything that I had learned or been exposed to in these in the religions of the world. Uh, and I began to, I was forced to sort of learn how to become operational within an even deeper metaphysics 
That said, I think these experiences do affirm the core truths of the different religions. It doesn't affirm the kind of the cultural privilege that each religion places on its own teacher, mm -hmm. its own lineage, its own revelation, its own scripture. Mm -hmm. Those are because every religion says its scriptures are unique in the word of God, that tells us that none of them are really <laughs> unique. All of them are part of a larger dynamic process, but it affirms the core insights of, of, of the fundamental part, the way we are participating in each other's reality, the way that we're all hardwired together and that our, our deepest well-being lies in serving not just our small good, but the good of all, the good of the whole, uh, the value of self-sacrifice that, you know, he who, that, that it's worthwhile to sacrifice for the good of others when the opportunity calls for us to do that. Uh, taking the long vision, looking to the deep future, orienting ourselves to the deep future, opening our consciousness to the inspiration that comes from deep, deep within, not only our own being, but that inspiration that arises out of nature itself at the very, very deepest levels of nature, as the Taoists would say, to become one with the Tao, you know, that, that type of deep inspiration. So on the one hand, I feel very comfortable with the religions of the world. And at the same time, I feel where I've ended up is in a place which is larger mm. than the re than the religions of the world. Yeah, I can I can see that. And it's you know I've been kind of asking this question, and I touched upon this a little bit ago in terms of feeling this call to ground everything in spirituality. Mm -hmm. And it's I feel like, and I know others feel like this as well. You know, where do you turn? because so many of the traditions that we have don't seem to answer or fulfill that deep desire right now. Yeah. And, you know, we can recognize, yes, they have value and led us to this point. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I see a kind of, um, and I, and I hate the clunkiness of the term, but a kind of eco-spirituality. Mm -hmm. But I've also been thinking a lot about in terms of like, and I see others doing this, wanting to reclaim a paganism. Mm -hmm. And I see benefits to that, but something that you wrote and some things that you were talking about that I think that a lot of folks who are considering this sort of neo-paganism they're looking at the ancient gods, not as actual gods, but of archetypes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet you mentioned at one point, I think that this whole experience, this journey that we're on, there's going to be new archetypes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, and this is a huge question. I don't know. And I don't, again, I don't know if I can frame it as well as I would like. Do you think that these, do you think that this new spiritual vision is something that is unfolding now? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for advice to give people and maybe even for myself in terms of how to go about 
grounding ourselves in, in in this new spiritual experience and reality as it kind of unfolds and i guess we're all probably participants in the creation of it yeah um, uh, well you know the the movements that you mentioned uh, neo-paganism and eco-spirituality i see both of these movements as attempting to put back into spiritual discourse nature which mm -hmm. is what was one of the two things lost mm -hmm. in, in the classic patriarchal religions you know they're trying to to bring us back to the innate wisdom of nature which is a wisdom which runs throughout our consciousness and throughout our bodies and connects our body consciousness to the body consciousness of earth and eco spirituality is a way of being spiritual a way of experiencing a form of spirituality which connects us to the planet and connects us to the stars and i think we can see this also in the resurgence of interest in astrology mm -hmm. not kind of that a naive mechanistic understanding of an astrology but the vision that the universe has a pulse to it the mm -hmm. galaxies have a pulse and our solar system has a pulse to it and if you really know how to read that pulse you can kind of feel how your body and your destiny unfolds in rhythm with the pulse of the solar system mm -hmm. and, and that's a form of eco spirituality of solar spirituality of, of, of galactic spirituality so i think there there is a lot of dissatisfaction with traditional forms of religious spirituality um, i think psychedelics are very interesting in that respect i mean psychedelics mm -hmm have come along at precisely this time. Psychedelics have come along at a particular time in history. Of course, they're very old. Uh, they've been in South America and in the Mesoamerica and, and the Native American traditions and the shamanic traditions have been working with psychedelics for thousands of years. But in our culture, in our industrialized culture, they're, they're relatively young. Mm. Uh, and so just that we're at this point in history where we are the most educated, we have the most sophisticated science with the deepest understanding of nature, but we've also bought into the vision that the entire physical world is devoid of consciousness. Mm. It has no consciousness. It's a giant machine and it's growing randomly with just random mutation. There's no intelligence to it. There's no intelligence. There's no purpose to our lives. There's no purpose to existence. It's just it's just blind matter spewing out more complex blind matter. At precisely that point in time, these mind openers have been dropped into our laps and they're giving highly educated people, highly scientifically informed people, the experience of the, the lie, that that is a lie. They're, they're being given the experience of the truth that our consciousness and our very existence is the result of an intelligent action, that the universe is intelligent. In fact, it's so intelligent that all the previous visions of its intelligence are inadequate. All the visions of prophetic revelation and, and how we have envisioned that intelligence are, are totally child's play compared to the reality itself. So psychedelics, if we use them carefully and constructively, it can give us direct experience 
of layers and layers and layers of this intelligence. And that, that ruptures this vision that it's all pointless, it's all purposelessness, and that when we die, our consciousness disappears as soon as our brains go. It opens up the, the experience that the universe is a living intelligence. And if the universe is alive, that's an aliveness that we might want to merge with, to enter into conscious communion with. So it, it reanimates this interest in vision quest of you know, immersing ourselves in solitude in nature, immersing ourselves in meditation, where we go deeper, we sink deeper and deeper into our consciousness until we drop out from underneath the, the floor of our individual consciousness and enter into communion with the deeper consciousness, which all spiritual traditions have told us it's there. But now we can actually accelerate our immersion into it so I think there are many, many things going on all at the same time. All of us are kind of helping us break out of the husks of where we have been growing in the past and exposing us to all sorts of new ideas which are giving us tokens of where we are going in the future. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. And I think that that is actually, I, I'm mindful of the time. That's, I think, a beautiful place to end. I know that you have a website, uh, chrisbeish.com. Uh, is that the best place for people to find out more about you and your work? It is. And it, as of this moment, that website is not finished, but it's okay. almost finished. Okay. Uh, and that is generally the best place for people uh, to find me or to connect with me. Uh, you can also go to um, a website called academia.edu. It's where academics post articles they've published. And if you search for my name there, Chris M. Beige, uh, you'll come to my page. And so my most important publications, articles, and things like that uh, will show up there. But soon, uh, my website will be done, it'll be finished, and that'll, that'll have all my publications, and it'll be a, an easy place to keep track of me and for us to dialogue. Okay, wonderful. And uh, I know that uh, your books are all widely available on Amazon and bookshop.org. Uh, if you don't want to make Jeff Bezos any richer than he is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, is there anything that you have coming up that you would like the listeners to know about? After holding my silence about psychedelics for so many decades, the conversation that I'm having now is about psychedelics. Now, I don't think my experiences are more important than other people's psychedelic experiences, but they are my experiences. And so they're the best thing that I have to offer mm -hmm. the psychedelic conversation at this time. And so what I am doing is hosting conversations around LSD and the mind of the universe, six week conversations, which are mm -hmm. just beginning. And those will be announced on my website for there for people who have read the book and want to have conversations around the themes of the book, not necessarily around my experiences, but around the themes that were touched in those experiences. And I, I want these conversations to be useful and available to not only to psychedelically initiated people, but also to people who are not psychedelically initiated. Mm -hmm. I get lots and lots of emails from people who have said, 
I understand what you're saying. I completely agree with you. I've had many of the same experiences and I've never done psychedelics at all. And that's the way, that's what you would expect because psychedelics don't give you an experience. They amplify consciousness and it's consciousness that does the work. Mm -hmm. So of course there are other ways of working with consciousness to access these very, very deep states. So conversations of with uh, LSD and the mind of the universe. And, you know, I'm just, I go where I'm called, you know, if people want to work together or invite me to go to different places, then I'll show up. But otherwise I'm, I'm comfortable just being relaxed and growing old. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and um, uh, I look forward to everything you're doing in the future. And, um, uh, your work has been very profound for me. So thank, thank you, Nick. I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for the opportunity to talk with all your viewers. Okay. Well, thank you. And that's a wrap on episode two of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews really do help. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that uh, notification bell so you will be kept in the know regarding upcoming episodes. For the time being, I'll be releasing episodes every other week with the goal of releasing them every week in the near future. Also, please consider making a donation via Patreon. You can make a one-time donation or join as a sustaining donor with three levels of membership available. Details can be found at patreon.com forward slash rebel spirit. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace and flourish in all possible ways.